Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 85,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For Stuff You Missed in History Class listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris, by the award-winning author David McCullough. Dublina and Sarah recently interviewed Mr. McCullough about the book and are huge fans. That's The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris, available from Audible. To try Audible free today and get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash history stuff. That's audiblepodcast.com slash history stuff. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And if you've listened to this podcast for a little while, you've probably heard us refer to something called spiritualism. A lot of the historical figures we discuss were spiritualists, which basically means that they believed that people who have physically died continue to exist in a kind of spirit world. Furthermore, these spiritualists also believe that people who've passed on to the spirit world can and do continue to communicate with us in the material world, usually through special people called mediums. So even if you haven't heard of spiritualists, you've probably heard of mediums from TV shows and movies. Yeah, they're pretty common in, in pop culture. But we should also mention that adherents of this philosophy or this religion differ quite a bit in their exact beliefs or their worldview. But, you know, we, we give you the gist here. You, you have the basic understanding. And a lot of high-profile people throughout history were actually spiritualists. And we've talked about some of them before. March podcast subject Victoria Woodhull was one kind of her famous pre-political career and even made her living as a medium for a while. Another one of our favorites, a guy who just pops up in podcast after podcast, Arthur Conan Doyle was famously a spiritualist and, and even wrote about it. But what is known as the modern spiritualist movement, the one that took place in the U.S. Um, in the mid-1800s or so, wasn't launched by a celebrity or an influential religious leader of some kind. It was actually kicked off by two regular little girls, Margaret and Catherine Fox. Margaret and Catherine Fox, they were also known as Maggie and Kate or Kathy more casually. They were born in 1833 and 1837, respectively. Their parents were John and Margaret Fox, a couple who had four children together and then separated for a time because of John's alcoholism. So when John got his act together and was working as a respectable blacksmith again, they got back together and had kind of their second brood of children, of which Maggie and Kate were a part. So we're going to tell you a little bit about these sisters' lives and their involvement in launching spiritualism. But to do so, we have to give you a little ghost story first. So in the winter of 1847-1848, the Foxes moved. They moved to the hamlet of Hydesville, New York, which is about 20 miles west of Rochester. And... There in Hydesville, John and Margaret rented a house for them and their younger kids, Maggie and Kate, who were about 14 and 11 years old at the time. But this house was not your ordinary rental. It came with a little bit of a reputation. It was said around town to be haunted. So 
things started to um, suggest that maybe that was the case pretty quickly. Yeah, so things went fine for a little while. And then around March of 1848, the foxes started to hear these strange sounds around the house at night. Creepy knocking noises, thumps on the ceiling, bumps on the walls and doors. And sometimes the rapping sounds were violent enough to shake the furniture. So So not just a little mouse scurrying through the walls or something. Yeah, really creepy stuff. The girls, though, didn't seem to be that bothered by it, strangely enough. But their mother, Margaret, who was very superstitious, was. She lost sleep over it. They checked the house. They didn't find anything amiss. And then on March 31st, Margaret was so tired and just needed some rest. She tried to get her family to get to go to bed early when it was barely dark. But the rapping noises started again when they were getting into bed. So she got up and she took a look around. And when she made it to the girls' room... Kate was looking into the darkness, and she bravely called out, Mr. Splitfoot, do as I do. And then she proceeded to snap her fingers in a way that mimicked the noises that they'd heard. But the strange thing happened next. When Kate finished this call out to Mr. Splitfoot, those sounds from somewhere in the house imitated her. And then Maggie clapped her hands four times. So it answered back. Yes. And according to most accounts, Kate then said, Oh, mother, I know what it is. Tomorrow is April Fool's Day and someone is trying to fool us. So it sounds a little suspicious, but also a little cool at this point. Intriguing. Yeah, and Margaret wasn't buying Kate's explanation. She decided, hey, my kids are talking to these noises, these strange whatever they are, Mr. Splitfoot. So she decided, I'm going to try to chat with this eerie thing myself. So she said, count to 10, and it made 10 noises. And then she asked whatever was making the noise to wrap out the ages of all of her children successively. And it did so correctly, pausing between each one long enough to set each child's age apart, all the way through Kate's age. And then, even weirder after that, there was a longer pause, and then three more raps. And those corresponded to the age of the fox's child who had died in infancy. So by this point, Margaret thinks that she's dealing with something real, and she asked this thing uh, if it was a human being making the noise. And her question was met by total silence, no raps. And then she asked, was it a spirit? And if so, manifests itself by making two sounds. Margaret then just started asking lots of other questions because she was thinking, all right, it is a spirit. And she later, by the way, relayed these uh, questions, these original statements in a published uh, work. And she started asking it, was it an injured spirit? Was it injured in this house? And then more questions, like, was the person living who'd injured it? Now we're getting into kind of TV territory, I guess. Yeah, so she went on that way for a while, and then she decided, 
I got to show this to people. So she started inviting the neighbors over to check out this phenomenon, too. So that night, about a dozen neighbors had come over and become convinced of the spirit's presence in the same way by asking questions that it answered correctly with an appropriate number of raps. They asked questions like the number of kids they had and the ages of the kids, similar things to what Margaret had asked. And eventually, by asking yes, no, and numerical questions, they later also came up with a code system, by the way, so that the raps could actually spell out words. Get but, into some more detailed questions, perhaps. Right. And they found out from this line of questioning the details of the spirit's story. It had been a 31-year-old peddler, a father of five, who was brutally murdered in the home's basement like a couple of years, two to five years Not prior. Not too long earlier. So to test the truth of the story, which by this point, you know, they had these cold, hard facts to work with, the neighbors decided that they would excavate the home cellar. But unfortunately, heavy spring rains got in the way and filled up the excavation pit and delayed the project for many weeks. But still, even without that proof or, or the neighbors actually getting to look for something, rumors about the haunting in the Fox's home started to spread far and wide and hundreds Hundreds of people, some of them skeptics, of course, some of them believers, would flock to Hydesville over the next few weeks to check it out for themselves, at least try to evaluate for themselves what was going on. And during that time, the spirit seemed to become bolder rather than these regular light raps. It started producing louder noises, even ones that mimicked a death struggle when it was telling the story of how it died. Um, and people began to notice that Maggie and Kate were always around when those spirit noises were going on. Skeptics, of course, wondered if the girls were somehow the source of the noises, but others began to see them as the mediums through which the spirits communicated. And this had a couple of different effects for the girls. Some people in the neighborhood regarded them with awe because of this, as kind of divinely inspired or chosen individuals. And others thought of them as unholy, perhaps even witches. So once word of the Hydesville haunting started to get around, Maggie and Kate's oldest sister, Anne Leah Foxfish, showed up in town, went to visit the girls. And Leah, at this point, was divorced. She lived in Rochester. She taught music lessons to support herself and her daughter. But after she learned about her younger sister's roles as local mediums, pretty prominent local mediums by this point, she took Kate back to Rochester with her. And apparently, Maggie and Margaret soon followed along. And They weren't the only ones who made this family move, though. Apparently, the spirits also followed the girls to Rochester and started haunting their home there. But it wasn't really like they were trying to escape from them. No, not at all. Actually, according to an article by Nancy Rubin Stewart in American History, Leah claimed in her memoir that the ghost had followed them to Rochester and, quote, so disturbed her household that she was forced to move. But apparently, Leah's next home was actually next to a cemetery, which is kind of a weird place to move if you (laughs) want to get away from ghosts, as Stuart points out. Maybe like you're looking for new work, actually. (laughs) Maybe. That's actually probably a smart thing to do now that we think of it. But the spirits continued to hang around the sisters. And in fact, they became more energetic. And soon Leah decided it was time to share them with other people. So they started holding seances in Rochester. Maggie and Kate conducted them. And Leah set herself up as the interpreter of the raps. She was kind of the impresario of the whole thing. So here's how they worked, the seances. That is, the guests would arrive. They'd sit around a table and say a prayer and then sing. 
then they'd hold hands and sit for a while in silence until eventually Maggie or Kate would fall into a trance. Then the rapping noises would begin. And people loved going to these. Demand for the seances grew. Even people like congressmen and judges, prominent folks in the community wanted to take part. And they eventually became known as the Rochester Rappings, which sounds a little different than what it really is. But then in November of 1849, Leah made a big announcement. She said that the spirits, it it wasn't enough to just keep doing these seances. The spirits wanted them to go public to publicize spiritualism. And so they rented out Corinthian Hall, which was the largest auditorium in Rochester, and charged admission for the very first time, 25 cents a head, to those who wanted to hear the raps in person. And Leah and Maggie, Kate was away at the time, I think visiting someone. Visiting a friend, I think. uh, Appeared on the stage at this huge Corinthian Hall four nights in a row that month. And they weren't really met with a uh, enthusiastic crowd, though. There were a lot of skeptics and a pretty hostile crowd, in fact, jeering. And um, a lot of the people in the audience just thought that they were coming to see the sisters exposed and frauds, and they didn't know how Leah and Maggie would try to keep it up four nights in a row in this in this huge venue. So for three days during this stretch of four performances, Maggie and Leah agreed to submit to investigations by different committees that were actually chosen by the previous night's audiences. According to an article by Barbara M. Weisberg in American Heritage, they were basically manhandled during these episodes. Their feet were held. They were placed in different positions. They were made to stand on glass plates with their skirts tied tightly around their ankles. A committee of women even took the sisters into a room and disrobed them to examine them and their clothing to see what was causing these rapping sounds. So the rapping sounds did keep going as those examinations were taking place. So the committees ended up acquitting the sisters of any sort of fraud. They all were convinced. This, however, did not help persuade the angry mob that showed up on the fourth night. Maggie and Leah actually needed a police escort to get out of there safely. But their star and modern spiritualism was officially born. Yeah, I mean, this seems like it would have only added to their fame around town and make people want to go out and see them, both the detractors and the supporters. But there were a lot of factors that actually helped spiritualism catch on quickly. There was a recent best-selling book called The Divine Principles of Nature by seer Andrew Jackson Davis, and that was based in turn on the writings of the 18th century philosopher and former podcast subject, Emanuel Swedenberg. And um, these writings seemed to predict the opening of communication with the spiritual world, so gave people some something concrete to look at. Yeah, it was good timing. It it was very good timing. Um, There was also popular interest in mesmerism, and that might have helped pave the way. And uh, we talked about that for last year's Halloween podcast. And another aspect, which we've kind of, in a strange way, talked about, too, in the Victoria Woodhill podcast, spiritualism also supported reforms such as abolition and women's suffrage, which were really gaining steam at the time. And then one One final thing going on at the time, or one extra thing, relating to new technology and science. The telegraph had become a central metaphor for spiritualism. Mediums were like a spiritual telegraph in a way. So you had this 
great concrete thing, not just the book to look at, but um, a scientific, a, p- a piece of technology to compare something that seemed really abstract too. Yeah, they could look at it and say, hey, if you can talk in an instant to someone in a different city, why can't you talk to someone in the spirit world exactly. so easily? So there was a lot going on. Yeah, and obviously bringing a lot of past podcast material together. <laughs> So by 1854, according to spiritualist estimates, the movement had somewhere from one to two million followers in the U.S. And as the movement grew, the spectacles just got more and more complicated. It wasn't just simple knocking or rapping noises anymore. There were phosphorescent glimmering clouds around people, levitating furniture, heavenly music, and something called spirit writing, which occurred when a medium was in a trance and then the spirit would try to communicate through her. She would actually write on a piece of paper or something, Sounds a little, a little note from the spirit. sophisticated than the wrapping alphabet system. Yeah, it was definitely a more elaborate way to get your message get across. Get more information yeah. <laughs> across quickly that way, yeah. Um, but the Fox sisters were only getting more and more famous in all of this, too. They went to New York City. They conducted really lucrative seances for some well-known folks there. Um, one famous seance included the New York Tribune editor, Horace Greeley, who was a big, big proponent of the sisters. Um, it also included William Cullen Bryant, George Ripley, George Bancroft, and James Fenimore Cooper, too. Yeah, and according to Weisberg's article, Cooper blessed the Fox sisters on his deathbed for having prepared him for, quote, this hour. I mean, that's a pretty good customer testimonial, I'd say. It is. And of of course, though, as spiritualism's popularity grew, skeptics grew more vocal about it, too. And some of the points they raised were really funny. I mean, if you think about it, some of the things they brought up were like, okay, if you're a spirit in the spirit world, why are you spending all your time knocking? Yeah. Or... Why do Hanging you need out to, at seances? Yeah, or levitating furniture and moving it around. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't you find a better way to communicate or, you know, something else to do with your time? So as you might imagine, a lot of mediums were exposed as frauds during this time, and debunkers kept trying to expose the sisters, the Fox sisters as well. There were a couple of theories put out there as to how they could be pulling this off. One was something called toology. So just to explain this, some people thought that the sisters had been making the rapping sounds by cracking their toes. Which Dublina and I have had a thorough conversation of this. And I'm just curious. I mean, does anybody out there, is is anyone out there really able to crack their toes to a super loud volume, like an audience hall would be able to hear it? Enough to make it sound like rapping on walls or floors. Because we do not have that power. (laughs) Yes, thank goodness. But there was another theory, too, which sounds a little more believable to me. It came from a trio of doctors in Buffalo. They said that the rapping noises sounded just like noises produced in the knee joints. So the Fox sisters allowed them to test this theory in 1851, and the doctors considered the test a success. When the sisters' knees were restricted, no raps occurred. So the sisters claimed, though, that the environment was just too hostile 
for the spirits, and that's why they didn't show up during this test. Good but, answer. But regardless, it didn't hurt their popularity. No, again, way. it's it's any publicity is is sort of good publicity for these sisters. And as successful as Maggie and Kate though were as mediums, they didn't fare so well in their personal lives. In the 1850s, Maggie became involved to some extent with a very well-renowned, famous Arctic explorer named Dr. Elisha Kent Kane. And there's not a whole lot of evidence about their relationship, but what evidence there is suggests that there was some connection between them. They were very likely in love, but because of her profession, he didn't really see her as a proper prospect. He thought that she was a fraud, probably. And he tried to transform her to make her somebody who he could be with, a more suitable match. She lived with his family for a little while to get an education, but ultimately he would not publicly claim a connection with her. So that's kind of a sad life story there for for Maggie. It is. And after his death in 1857, Maggie said that they'd been secretly married or maybe common law married. It differs depending on which source you look at. And he, she also said that he'd left her a small inheritance, but his family really fought this. And she ended up publishing a book of letters from him to her later, but we're not really sure to what extent she edited that or, or how accurate they are. In 1858, though, she did follow Kane's wishes and retired and converted to Roman Catholicism. Maggie's older sister, Leah, retired the same year. She married her third husband, who was a wealthy businessman and a spiritualist, conveniently enough, around this time, and really just didn't need money from seances anymore. And then Kate continued to stay in the scene, to be visible in the movement for several more years after her sisters had both retired. But in the 1860s, both she and Maggie began to succumb more and more to their problems with alcoholism. And uh, eventually Kate moved to England in 1871, hoping to beat that addiction and was able to for, for a time at least. Yep, she married wealthy barrister and spiritualist Henry D. Jenkin and had two kids with him. But when Jenkin died in the early 1880s, she lost her battle with alcoholism and ended up moving back to the States as her condition just continued to worsen. But the Fox sisters did have one more big moment. Their last big moment in the spotlight really occurred in October 1888. At that time, Leah tried to have Kate's children taken away because of her alcoholism. And so in her defense, Maggie kind of decided to lash out. Before an audience at New York's Academy of Music, Maggie confessed that the sisters' communication with the spirits had been a hoax. And removing her right shoe, she confirmed that toology theory that we told you about earlier by creating sharp wraps with the first joint of her big toe. She basically said the whole thing started as the girls trying to play a prank on their superstitious mom way back in Hydesville and ended with Leah turning them into her own money-making tools. Asking them how, how they did it, essentially. A year later, though, Maggie recanted this confession. She said that she'd been pressured into it by powerful people because she needed the money. Both she and Kate tried to continue holding seances to make money, even though Kate also tried to confess over the years and prove that it had been a hoax and then would go back now and again to being a medium. But neither of them were as successful as they had been earlier in their career. They spent their last years in poverty. And Leah died in 1890, Kate in 1892, and finally Maggie in 1893. And 
By that point, spiritualism had already started to wane in the United States, but its popularity was still growing elsewhere, and it still is, of course, around today. The Fox sisters are still credited with launching the modern spiritualist movement, although there are probably a variety of opinions out there about their actual ability to communicate with spirits. We do have one last note, though. We'd like to leave you on a spooky note for a Halloween podcast. Yes, of course. Uh, It's a note that relates to that variety of opinions about their actual ability to communicate. So remember that original communication of theirs with the spirit of the peddler? Well, when the water did finally drain out of that excavation pit in the cellar in 1848, some partial remains were found, some hair and a few bones. Of course, skeptics at the time thought that it was a plant. But according to Weisberg's article, in the early 1900s, a skeleton was found behind the cellar wall, and experts later estimated that it had been there for about 50 years. Mm. So right around the time that the spirit told the sisters it had been murdered. Something to think about. Yeah, so we're not going to give our opinion on it either way, but we'll just leave you guys with that and move on to listener mail. So we have an email here from John and Kara. And they say, Dear Dublina and Sarah, my daughter, a high school sophomore, and I never miss an episode of the podcast. She always asks if there's a new episode when she gets in the car after school. When at the beginning of the Radium Girls podcast, you mentioned U.S. Radium in Orange, New Jersey, I told her that I could fill in the end of the story if you two didn't carry the story forward enough. I grew up in a neighboring town to Orange called Glenridge. In the early to mid-1980s, my old neighborhood, together with the neighborhoods in a few other nearby towns, was declared a Superfund site due to radium contamination in the soil, and U.S. radium was one of the sources. The park behind our old house, we moved from that neighborhood to another in Glen Ridge a few years prior, was one of the prime sites designated for cleanup. It was surreal to see men in hazmat suits excavating the top few feet of soil from the park and sealing it in steel drums for disposal. All the neighborhood kids played on that soil. The high school marching band and soccer teams practiced on it. Little leagues spent many summers on it. In addition, many houses were designated for remediation. Some only had to have their yards dug up. Others had to be supported on steel beams while entire basements were removed and backfilled. I believe a couple were even demolished. Today, the neighborhood is back to normal. The park has been restored and its facilities upgraded from the dusty ball fields I remember. I'm not aware that the area was ever recognized for having an unusual cancer cluster, so we seem to have avoided the worst-case scenario. Here are a couple of websites that carry the story of U.S. Radium and the Radium Girls to the late 20th century, and he included that, so maybe we can put that on our Facebook page or something for people to check out. Well, I thought it was interesting, too, to hear about the Superfund site. I guess I'm used to thinking of them as the old factory site or the old field or something, but to hear about a Superfund site that is a whole town and you have your house lifted up so your basement can be cleaned that was pretty uh, pretty remarkable so thank you john for telling us about that little connection to your childhood and to kara for always listening after school if you'd like to share any of your own personal connections to podcasts we've done or suggest an idea to us, please email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com or you can look us up on Facebook or on Twitter at Missed in History. And if you're planning a little Halloween tour, perhaps, of haunted houses, we do have an article for you called Five Real Life Haunted Houses and you can look for it on our homepage by searching for Real Life Haunted Houses at www.howstuffworks.com. Thank you.
This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 85,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. To try Audible free today and get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash history stuff. That's audiblepodcast.com slash history stuff. The House Network's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 